Amen. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to our sermon text this morning. You'll find it on page one in your Bible. Genesis chapter one, verse one. We will start with verse one and end with verse one. This is God's word. And God's word says that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the safety you provided for all the people who have gathered here as we came out on slippery roads and cold weather. We thank you for a warm building that we can worship you in and hear your word being preached, sing your praises. We ask now that as we turn to your word and we consider even the very beginning, Genesis 1-1, the truths that it contains that you would teach us that we would go away from here praising you as the great creator God who made all things. It's to you, through you, from you that all things are. And so we praise you for this in Jesus' name. And amen. Well, over the next several months, we're going to be going through the first three chapters of Genesis. The, the series is entitled Creation. And if you were to press me for a subtitle, the subtitle would be Investigating God's Design and Discovering Our Place in This World. So that gives you a little bit of an idea of where we're going to be going with this series. But since it's the first sermon in this series this morning, I want to start off by sharing with you some of the reason why I've decided to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and what I hope to accomplish with these sermons. If I had to guess, I would, I would say that most of you are probably familiar, we could say very familiar, with the first couple chapters of the Bible. You might think, well, if, if that's the case, if we're familiar with this and you consider most of us to be familiar with this, then Chuck, why would you spend so many months going through it? Well, you see, it isn't familiarity that I think we most need. Familiarity often comes without understanding and wisdom, and sometimes being familiar with the facts of a story gives us the impression that we already know all there is that we need to know. And it's not just knowing in the way that we often think of knowing. The creation account in particular relates to us not just that kind of knowing, but a perspective a right kind of starting point for understanding the world that we live in and the God that we worship. In fact, I would say many of the challenges that face the church today, living in the secular culture that we live in, can't be addressed and resolved unless we have a firm grip on what we might call the beginning of all things. Even that phrase, think about it for a moment, in the, even that phrase, in the beginning, implies there is an end for which all things were made. So it is that in the beginning we learn of God's design and God's purpose for creation, specifically for man, who is made both male and female in God's image. So what is a man? And what is he for? And what is a woman? What is she for? And what are children? And what are they for? And what is the family and the household? And what is it for? But then, of course, we have the fall of man in Genesis 3, where sin comes into this world, and sin distorts God's good design and puts man under the curse of death. And this, too, helps us to understand the world that we live in. Yet that dark day, the, the light of the gospel we see shines when God promises the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. 
So we have the foreshadowing of God's mercy and grace redeeming and restoring God's good design. Grace not canceling nature, but completing it or fulfilling it. So it's my hope that in this series to connect some of the most significant realities of life together for us. In creation, we're given a framework for a right understanding of God and creation and our place in it. It's the beginning, not just of the world, but of the great gospel story that finds its climax in the person and work of Christ. But in order for us to have a right understanding of our redemption in Christ, a right understanding, I would say, even of the gospel, we must also have a robust understanding of God's original design. Nature, listen very carefully, and I'm going to say this a number of times through the series, nature and grace are not at odds. Nature and grace are not at odds. At odds. And in fact, to understand God's grace... We have to, under, to understand his special grace. We have to understand his common grace. To understand the gospel rightly, we have to understand the good grace of God in the very beginning, in his creation, in his design. So nature and grace, they're both the work of a good and a sovereign God. So this morning, the way we're beginning this series is by looking at verse 1 of chapter 1. And we're going to do that next week too. In the beginning, we read, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there there are many lessons we can draw from this first verse in the Bible, but the first is this, that contrary to the, the array of competing creation narratives of the ancient world, Genesis 1 affirmed that there was and there is only one true God. You know, that, that phrase, the heavens and the earth, we read through, past that pretty quickly, but what does that include? When it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, what is that? That's everything. That phrase, heavens and the earth, is is meant to be completely comprehensive, except only the God who made those things, which means that there is only one God. And this is affirmed throughout the Bible. Listen, for example, to God's message through the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earthquakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. Thus you say to them, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, stretched out the heavens. Now this means that any religion that claims there are multiple gods, many gods, is a false religion. The gods of the Mormons, for example, or the god of the Mormons, for example, is a false god because he is a god amongst other gods. But the god of the Bible is the one and only god who is the source of all things, including this world, everything in this world, and all the way up to the heavens. So Genesis begins by establishing this truth. There's only one god. And the principle, the principle lesson about that god, there's only one god, and the principle lesson about that one god is that he is the true God who is the creator. He alone is the creator of all things. That's the principle. The first thing we learn about this God, the first thing we learn about the true God is that he is the creator of all things. That's the most foundational lesson that we can learn about God. Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For you created all things, and by your will, they existed and were created. Now that lesson alone, there's one God, and and he is the creator of all things. That lesson comes with many implications. 
For example, and we, I say implications, I, I should say necessary implications. Exam, example number one. This tells us that the one true God is an all-powerful God. A weak God, a God who is limited in power, could not create something out of nothing, let alone a diverse, complex, and comprehensive world such as ours. We could also infer from creation that this God is likewise the owner of all things. If he created all things, that means he's the owner. He has all authority in heaven and on earth because he made the heavens and the earth. We could also conclude that this God is not synonymous with creation, but distinct from it. He's not synonymous with creation. He's distinct from it. Why do I say that? Well, because it says God created the heavens and the earth, and that implies that God is not the same as the heavens and the earth. You see, if he were the same as the heavens and the earth, it would be God became or God evolved into the heavens and the earth. But no, God created. So in the coming weeks, we're going to cover some of these good and necessary implications. But for now, I want us to turn our attention to three of the most fundamental of them all. And they're all, all these three are inter, intimately related to, to one another. First, God's pre-existence. Second, God's self-existence. And third, God's independent existence. So God's pre-existence, his self-existence, and his independent existence. Let's, let's read the verse again. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible begins with creation, and it tells us, it relates to us, that creation begins with God. In short, before anything else was, God was. Before the material world began, God was. Before the cosmos began, God was. Before history began, God was. Scripture tells us of the beginning of the world, but it never, ever speaks of the beginning of God. The beginning of God's existence. The Bible, you see, presents to us a God who simply is, simply was, and simply will always be. He precedes all things because he is the one and only eternal being who is the source of all things, is the source of all matter, all space, and even the source of time itself. Psalm 90, verse 1 and 2. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now these ideas connect together, and I say this is a necessary and good implication of Genesis 1.1, and here this verse proves it. That the God who was there and the God who created necessarily implies that that God is an eternal God. And you see this in a number of verses, but look at, look at the verse I just read in Psalm 90. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see what that verse is doing? It's connecting this idea that the God who was there before creation, that existed before creation, must necessarily be the everlasting God. He must be eternal. In his seminal work entitled Reform Dogmatics, 19th century theologian Herman Bovink wrote what, of what it means that God is eternal. It's a co concept that is hard for us to grasp or wrap our mind around. And this is what Bovink says. 
He says, time is the mode of existence of all finite creatures. Now, you might need to just chew on that one for the, the next week. And when you come back, you can read it again. Time is the mode of existence of all finite creatures. What is time? It is a mode of existence for finite creatures. God, on the other hand, is the eternal I am, who is without beginning or end, and listen closely, not subject to measuring or counting in his duration, because time is a means of measuring or counting duration. It's measuring change, counting duration. And that doesn't happen with God because God is the I am. He is eternal. And then he clarifies, God's eternality or eternity, however, is not static or immobile, but fullness of being, present and imminent in every moment. So Bavik is saying, God is the eternal God, transcends time, and yet he is present within it somehow. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. And so you see this eternality of God is implied in his preexistence before all things. It is implied in the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth and all that is in them had a beginning. And their beginning was the en enacted by the one who has no beginning, who existed before all creation and from whom all creation came into being. And so this brings us to our second observation about the creator God from this verse. If he alone existed before all things, then that means he alone has the quality of self-existence. That is to say that he has life in himself. His being is eternal and therefore it cannot be derived from anything or anyone outside of himself. One of the greatest theologians and apologists of our time, R.C. Sproul, spoke with clarity to that age-old question that faced philosophers over the centuries. And that question was, why is there something and not nothing. See, Sproul pointed out, and I'm sure many Christian philosophers before him pointed out, if there was nothing 10 billion years ago, if there was nothing 20 billion years ago, if there was nothing 100 billion years ago, then what would be now? Nothing. Why? Because out of nothing, nothing comes. So why is there something? And Sproul said there are three possible answers to that question. If something exists, it is either, he says, number one, eternal, meaning it has always existed, or number two, it created itself, which really is an impossibility because out of nothing, nothing comes, and self-creation requires that the thing in question be before it was. And then number three, it was created by something eternal. So really, we only have two logical answers. If something exists, it either is eternal or it was created by something eternal. So either we say matter is eternal or that matter was created by something that is eternal. 
And we could ask the question, well, does matter exhibit the characteristics of infinity? And even if you did say yes, then you have to answer, how do you account then for living beings? If it's matter that's eternal, how did we go from a what to a who? And human beings clearly do not have any characteristics of infinity, so it would be absurd to propose that man is eternal, so we must have been created by something eternal, and that something must have being because we have being. Yet our being must be derived from one who eternally has the power of being within himself. Sproul said in his book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, the notion, that something being, the notion of something being self-existent is not only rationally possible, it's rationally necessary. Again, reason demands that if anything is, then something must have within itself the power of being. Otherwise, there would be nothing. Unless something existed in itself, nothing could possibly exist at all. And this is what both nature and the word of God teach us and reveal to us. For if in the beginning God created all that has life and breath, then we can rightly conclude that he has the power of life in himself. We could put it this way. Who can create life but the one who has life in himself, who is life, who is the absolute source of being itself? This concept is what theologians often call the aseity of God. And it is wonderfully reflected in the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am, not I have become what I have become. There is no becoming in God. He is simply being. And the aseity of God doesn't posit that God created himself, no, but that God has the power of being in himself. He owes his existence to no one and to nothing outside of himself. He is from eternity to eternity who he is, and who he is, he is, and he will always be. Isaiah 40, 28 says, have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. There you see again that connection between God being the creator and God being eternal himself. Only God has a seity. Only God is eternal and therefore self-existent. Our being is derived it's from him. Our being is derivative. His is not. We have our being from him who has being within himself. So the Apostle Paul was able to say to the Athenians in Acts 17, 28, in him we live and move and have our being. Now that means that God doesn't exist on the same level of existence as we do. He is a different sort of being than us. He has a different sort of being than us. His existence is infinite. It's self-sustaining. It's wholly independent. Ours is finite. Ours comes not from within ourselves, but it comes from him. The 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1 says, The Lord our God is one. The one living and true God, he is self-existent and infinite in being and perfection. 
Herman Bovink again, he is the perfect, highest, the most excellent being. All being is contained in him. He is a boundless ocean of being. Now this brings us to our last observation, God's independent existence. God alone is all-sufficient. In the beginning, the eternal and self-existing God created all things. And we could simply say that since everything came from him alone, and since he preceded all things, and since our being is dependent upon his absolute being, then he is wholly all-sufficient in himself. In other words, he is not dependent upon anything outside of himself. He created the heavens and the earth, and all creatures then, not out of some need for them, but because it pleased him to do so. He wasn't Lonely, as some have suggested, he wasn't bored. He wasn't on a quest for more glory or power. He did not create out of any need within himself. For remember, he is the God who inhabits eternity, which means he always and forever was the perfect and complete being. So there was never any deficiency within him. And he remains today the same God who lacks nothing and is in no way dependent upon the creature or upon his creation. Paul says to the men of Athens, again in Acts 17, 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he, gives, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The creator God is both self-existent and self-sufficient. He doesn't need man to serve him. He does not need man to complete him, contrary to what many Christians today think. God does not have a man-shaped hole in his heart. Nor does he need counsel or help from man in any way. Isaiah 40, verse 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what? Man shows him his counsel. Whom did he consult and whom may, who made him understand? God is absolutely independent. He has no deficiencies, no need of anything from his creatures. He is dependent upon nothing, and yet everything is dependent upon him. Now, this is one of the ways that we can know if we've believed in the God of the Bible or a God of our own making. A man-made God is a God who in some form or fashion is dependent upon man for his being, not just his being, but also for his wholeness, for his felicity, for his contentment and joy, we could say, or the accomplishment of his plans on earth. But if you think that God needs you, then you're thinking of a different God than the God of Genesis 1-1, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And one important implication of this is that we can never do anything that would put God in our debt. That means he cannot be manipulated or used by man. The whole last ditch effort prayer, oh God, if you do this, 
one thing for me, then I'll never do this or that again and I'll, I'll do this for you. That prayer is misguided because he doesn't need you and he doesn't need any of your favors. In the end, and, and listen carefully, in the end, what does God say to his servants who believed in him and obeyed him and served him? What does he say to them? Does he say thank you? He says, well done. He doesn't say thank you. you listen, you'll never find a place in Scripture where God says thanks to his people. You'll find it the other way around all the time. God's people absolutely give thanks to him, but he never gives thanks back. Why is that? Is that because he's just ungrateful? No, you see, it's between the difference of well done and thank you. What's the difference? It's the difference between a God who is dependent upon man and a God who is all-sufficient and needs nothing from us. Thank you implies that a favor has been done. He needed you. He had a need, and you met that. Well done, on the other hand, implies no deficiency or inability in God himself, but simply that there was right action, a right response on your part that was pleasing in his sight. God will never be in your debt. He will never be in my debt. But you and I will always be indebted to him. James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Job 41.11, God speaking of Job, Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Romans 11.34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given him a gift, a gift to him, that he might be repaid? See, God's all-sufficiency. He is all-sufficient in himself. And this should actually be a great comfort to us, the God who is. And the God we worship is not a needy God or a God who is dependent upon us. His majesty and greatness are not dependent upon our praise. He's not like the Santa Clauses in the movies that you see today, where when there's not enough Christmas cheer, he just can't fly in his sled because his power is dependent upon the faith, the belief of the people. He's not like that. His glory, his power, they are not dependent upon us. He did not save us either out of a psychological need to be affirmed by us. The son didn't go to the cross because the father just couldn't imagine living life without us. Scripture doesn't teach that. The work of the triune God in creation and to accomplish the salvation of man flowed from the fullness of his being, not in an attempt to fill a void within himself. It flowed out of the fullness of his being, out of the fullness of his love, out of the fullness of who he is. And his grace meets our need. We don't meet his. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a second. This makes me think of God as being indifferent to us. Is God indifferent to us? If he doesn't need us, does that mean he's stoic or he's uncaring about us? Not at all. 
Scripture makes clear that is not not the case. Because even though he doesn't need us, Psalm 149 teaches us that he still delights in his people. Luke 15 tells us that he rejoices over the sinner who repents and turns to him. And furthermore, he is pleased to use his people as instruments in his hands for his purposes in this world. That means he doesn't need to, he doesn't need you, but he's pleased to work in and through you. God's independence doesn't mean an uninterest in man, but it does mean that he's not dependent upon us for his existence or for his wholeness. Neither are his purposes contingent upon man or man's help, our will. Yet he is ordained to include us and to use us for his purposes. So, it's not a you scratch my, my back and then I'll scratch your back kind of scenario. No, we can't give anything to him that he doesn't already have or that he hasn't already given to us. So actually the scenario is a lot like, more like a mom who takes a five-year-old out to shop for dad's birthday and tells the five-year-old what dad might like and then buys the gift with dad's money so that he can give it to dad. It's actually a lot more like that. Our obedience, our service, our worship is not to meet his need. It is simply the right response to his glory and his grace. And we praise him and we worship him, not only because of all that he's done for us, not only because of his grace given to us in Jesus Christ who died and rose for us that we might be rescued from the penalty of our sins, but also because he is, as the eternal and self-existent one, as the all-sufficient one, perfect in all his beings and attributes, perfect in knowledge, power, wisdom, love, goodness, holiness, and so on, he is worthy of all worship. He is the one who is worthy of all honor. He is the one who is worthy of all praise. And so the 1689 Baptist Confession again, chapter two, paragraph two. God has all life, glory, goodness, and blessedness in and of himself. He alone, he alone is all sufficient in himself. He does not need any creature he has made, nor does he derive any glory from them. Instead, he demonstrates his glory in them, by them, to them, and upon them. He alone is the source of all being, and everything is from him, and through him, and to him. In Revelation 4, we're given a vision of the throne room of God. And John describes it for us and says, chapter 4, verse 8 through 11, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever 
and ever. They cast their thrones before the throne, they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist, and they were created. And what do we say to this? Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him all things. To him be glory forever and ever and amen. Let's pray. O Lord, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Give us then, Lord, a right vision of who you are, of your majesty, of your holiness, and of your glory. Help us to think rightly of you, and to then worship you rightly and to respond rightly to who you are and what you have done for your creatures. And this we pray in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.